What's happening in the world coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Bells toll, flags unfurl. The nation marks 22 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks took the lives of almost 3,000 people. We have the latest from New York, D.C. and the Pentagon. And as the nation remembers, countless Americans are still feeling the effects of that tragic day. A legal advocate offers information that could protect you from further suffering. A new relationship between Vietnam and the U.S. The Vietnamese government now calling the U.S. a comprehensive strategic partner. No more guns allowed in New Mexico's largest city, even if you have a permit. The state's governor issued a civil order, and some lawmakers now want to impeach her. And winners announced for the 10th NTD Classical Chinese Dance Competition. Who are the champions? Our reporter goes behind the curtain. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Stephanie Cox, standing in for Chris Spears. Our top news, the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Americans across the nation are looking back on the deadliest terror attack on U.S. soil. In New York, a solemn bell toll in a moment of silence at 9.03. The moment Flight 175 struck the World Trade Center's South Tower on September 11, 2001. On that day, two hijacked commercial airplanes crashed in New York, one at the Pentagon and another one in Pennsylvania Field after passengers mounted a counterattack. Some 3,000 people lost their lives in the attacks. In New York City today, Rudy Giuliani, the mayor at the time of the attacks, attended the ceremony. He was joined by Vice President Kamala Harris, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer, and other officials. Over to the Pentagon, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, joined by Army General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, lay a wreath at the National 9-11 Memorial in memory of those who perished in the attacks. Today, we pay tribute to the 2,977 innocent men, women, and children who lost their lives 22 years ago today at this very minute. And I'm especially moved to be here with the family members of those we lost, with the survivors of the attacks, and with the first responders who raced to save innocent lives. As part of the ceremony, a U.S. flag was unfurled today on the site of the Pentagon. Among the thousands of lives lost, 125 were at the Pentagon. Another memorial was held in the U.S. Capitol when the Justice Department paid tribute to the victims. Today, we remember the pain and devastation that our nation endured. We remember those we lost on September 11th and those who have died of 9-11-related illnesses since then. Attorney General Merrick, Gar Merrick Garland honored the victims and their families. He reaffirmed vigilance against terrorism to protect the American people and to do it in a way that is consistent with American values and the rule of law. 
New York City officials have identified two more victims of the September 11th terror attacks on the World Trade Center. The men and women were identified through advanced DNA testing of their remains. The names of the two new victims are being withheld at the request of their families. These are the first identifications since September 2021. The techniques used to make the identifications after such a long time include recently adopted next-generation sequencing technology. The technique is more sensitive and rapid than conventional DNA techniques. And the number of first responders who lost lives from post-9-11 illnesses continues to rise. It now nearly matches the number of firefighters who died during the attacks. A total of 341 firefighters, paramedics and support personnel have died of illnesses linked to the attack. Their names are now marked on the FDNY World Trade Center Memorial Wall, along with those who died on the day of the tragedy. This number is very close to the 343 firefighters who lost their lives during the attack. On September 6, the fire department added 43 new names to the memorial. After the attacks, first responders who stayed to help at the scene were exposed to dust tied to heart disease. Some have suffered respiratory illnesses and thousands have been diagnosed with cancer. And at Ground Zero, people gather to pay their respect to the many lives lost that day and all those who fought to keep them from perishing. The people we spoke to came from near and far. We're here today to show our respect to the lives that were lost and the fearless firefighters and police and everyone else who put their own lives at risk and lost their lives to save their fellow human beings. There are innocent people who die and for for nothing. It's just a really like sad day. Yeah. yeah. Scary day. That we'll always remember as yeah. Americans. I'm on my way to Ukraine. I'm a rescue medic. My, I remember the day when this happened. I exactly remember where I was and how tragic it was. And uh, every time I come to New York, I try to just drop by. I wanted to come here and help, I remember. And uh, I made myself available to come here. And I've been in many rescue situations, so to, to see the tragedy happening and evolving in the, during the time it happened, it was just, uh, it broke my heart. Mm -hmm. It was a very weary day. It was just very quiet, no planes in the sky. We're from Tennessee, and it was like the whole world just stopped turning. Me appreciate the veterans and the police officers and the fire department and all the ones that try to save the people. And I remember the people jumping out the windows in the while it was going down. It was just a terrifying experience. And next we hear from one of New York's leading 9-11 legal advocates, Michael Barish. He's represented more than 35,000 members of the 9-11 community and says that while there's still more suffering from that fateful day, there's hope and help along the way. Michael, welcome, thank you. Great to have you on our show. Thanks for having me. Now, more than two decades on from 9-11, there's still so much suffering. What do you think is the most important thing that people need to know today? Great question, Steph. Um, I spent a lot of time in Washington lobbying to get 
Congress to pass the Zedroga Health and Compensation Act. Most people still haven't applied. It provides free health care for the rest of your life if you ever get any of the 69 cancers that have been linked to the World Trade Center toxins or the Pentagon toxins. If you're, el if you're found eligible by the World Trade Center Health Program with a 9-11 illness, you're then entitled to $250,000 for your cancer or more if you were disabled and couldn't work anymore. And then, if God forbid you die of a 9-11 cancer and there's a presumption linking these cancers notwithstanding a family history, your family's entitled to another half a million dollars in most cases. And yet not enough people are hearing the word. So I so appreciate you following this story. Well, why, why don't people apply? Great question. Well, the number one reason is that if they have heard of these two programs, the health program and the victim compensation fund, in many, many cases they think, oh, those programs are just for New York City firefighters and cops. And yes, they are. But downtown office workers, students, teachers, residents, we were all breathing the exact same toxic dust. A second reason is guilt. Some non-responders feel like, ah, oh, I don't want to take money away from the firefighters and cops. I assure you, these two programs have been permanently extended and fully funded. So you're not taking money away from anyone. And the third reason people don't apply is they don't connect the dots. So if you, God forbid, had breast cancer, but it wasn't diagnosed until 10 or 20 years after 9-11, you might not say, oh, I was down there. I was a school teacher. I worked at Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank, or I was a student. My mother had breast cancer, so how could my breast cancer be linked to those toxins from 22 years ago? Well, there's a presumption linking 69 cancers and many respiratory illnesses to your toxic exposure, notwithstanding a family history of that illness. So you're not taking money away from anyone else. Don't feel guilty. Assume that your cancer or your illness is related and know you're entitled to these benefits. Congress created these benefits for you. Wow. And you yourself suffered some losses from that. Well, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you about the losses in my firm, which is also what makes this so personal for me. Uh, before 9-11, my law firm represented firefighters injured in the line of duty. And then, of course, we lost 343 firefighters on 9-11, many of whom were my friends, my clients, witnesses in my clients' cases. And then we kept hearing all these people coughing. And they called it the World Trade Center cough. But the EPA told us it was safe to breathe. Do your patriotic duty and go back to work. Go back to school go back to your residence. I mean, it was terrible advice. Um, but as I said earlier, Congress did the right thing years later when they created the health program and the victim fund to help everybody in the 9-11 community. Um, the reason I take it so personally is my secretary, Liana, died of breast cancer uh, in 2007 at the age of 47. My paralegal, Dennis Cotter, also died at the age of 47 he died of kidney cancer. My secretary, Barbara, over there, she has B lymphoma. My, my partner, Barry, has skin cancer. I am a prostate cancer survivor. And we're just half, we were just half the office at the time, but we were exposed to the same toxins. But every day, 
a new 12 people call me up telling me they have cancer. Every day, another two people who I already represent tell me that their loved one passed away. So this is not going to end anytime soon. It's, it's a real tragedy that a lot of people don't know about. Um, even volunteers are eligible and they may not know it. So again, thank you so much for covering this story and helping me spread the word about the World Trade Center Health Program, the Victim Compensation Fund, and who is eligible. Absolutely. Michael Barish, thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you. Well, thank you for doing your homework, and it's always a pleasure. And you can see the full interview with Michael Barish on our website at ntd.com. And after the break, China lost out at the G20 summit, according to a retired colonel. Find out why and why he says President Biden did well in India. And the Kremlin confirms that Russian President Putin will meet with the North Korean leader. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. President Biden has just wrapped up his visit to India and Vietnam. That's as China came into the spotlight amid an unexpected meeting between President Biden and China's number two. Joining us now is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao in New Delhi, India. The G20 summit in New Delhi, India here has just wrapped up and President Biden said after the meeting that this summit was a really good moment for the U.S. to demonstrate its global leadership. And yesterday, President Biden headed for Vietnam to meet with the Vietnamese leader. The Vietnamese government announced that it's now promoting the U.S. to the highest level of relationship, calling it a comprehensive strategic partner. And the White House says that it also marks a turning point for the U.S. and Vietnam, which are at the point where the two are both trying to address challenges when it comes to the South China Sea, strategic partnership as well as critical technologies. And President Biden, while in Hanoi, said this. This new elevated status that we uh, force for prosperity and security in one of the most consequential regions in the world. And as Biden traveled to India and Vietnam, China, whose leader was absent at the G20 summit, was dominating headlines. How does China come into play in all this, and what did Biden say about it, Iris? You're absolutely right. So China was a big focus during these trips. For example, while in New Delhi, India, during the G20 summit, President Biden really had this focus of rallying other countries to invest more in developing countries. And that goal was ultimately to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative. And actually, while in Vietnam as well, the elevation of U.S.-Vietnam relationship was really seen as a major move to counter China's influence in Asia as well. So China, of course, was at the center of the spotlight here. But uh, well, at a press conference in Hanoi, President Biden emphasized that he was not trying to contain China, but he did, however, call out China for trying to change the rules. Watch. As China's beginning to change some of the rules of the game uh, in terms of trade and other issues, we're not looking to decouple from China. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to sell China material that would enhance their capacity to make more nuclear weapons. 
So President Biden also said during the press conference that he did actually meet with China's number two official, Premier Li Chang, at the G20 summit. And that was unexpected because the White House kept telling us that the two did not have any plans to meet. And about that meeting, President Biden said it was not confrontational at all. And he said they talked about stability as well as other issues in the global south. And now President Biden's on his way to Alaska, where he's going to mark the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. He's going to get back to Washington on Tuesday. Reporting New Delhi, India, Iris Tao, NPD News. Thank you, Iris. And next, we'll hear analysis of the G20 summit from a retired Marine Colonel, Grant Newsham, who now serves as a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. We spoke earlier today. Grant, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on again. As G20 wraps up and the world is looking at the relationship between China and the U.S. especially, what do you think of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's absence from the G20 summit? Well, it's perplexing. and It's a mystery. Uh, hopefully, the CIA has it figured out with their $80 billion budget for it and the entire intelligence community. The rest of us just speculate. You know, it could be he didn't want to share the, the limelight with uh, Prime Minister Modi of India. Uh, it would have been awkward, given that China just produced a map which uh, claims it takes part of Indian territory. You know, who knows? It, it is a, a vacuum that gets left. Vacuums get filled. Uh, but also note that uh, he did send someone else. So there was a Chinese delegation, and I'm told they went there with the objective, the mission of causing trouble. Uh, so him not going, it's, it, it's a mystery. Um, I've heard Chinese spokesmen try to explain it away as, oh, nothing, no big deal. But if you have to explain, something's curious, something's going on. And as I said, a vacuum uh, was created because he wasn't there. And uh, hopefully got filled by some uh, more freedom-loving people. We did see at this summit the U.S. and its allies pushing forward on a, an alternative Belt and Road-type initiative of infrastructure and investment around the world. How do you see that looking going forward? Well, you have to wait a while. Uh, these things often get announced with a very handsome press conference and with a lot of fanfare. Uh, but if someone could show me who is responsible for the success or failure of it. Who's going to make it happen uh, in the, the U.S. government? Um, that's not clear. So I'm not sure exactly what will come with it of this. It's interesting. It's good to see it announced. Uh, and what you're specifically talking about is this corridor that was announced is going to go from India, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, Israel, Jordan, and on to Europe. And it's going to move... Like trans transport things, and supposedly part of it's going to be involving energy. It is ironic that the Biden administration canceled the Eastern Mediterranean pipeline that would have brought uh, Israeli natural gas through Cyprus to Greece up into Europe. Would have been very useful once the Russians attacked Ukraine and cut off uh, the fuel supplies. At the time, the Biden administration actually made fun of the uh, the project, uh, because it was, was just at the talking about stage. It was just a memorandum of, memorandum of understanding. Uh, and here, now they're talking all this, this up, this latest thing. Uh, so I'm not too impressed yet, not too excited, but it is nice to hear it talked about. Now let's see what actually happens. So overall, how would you assess the outcomes of the G20 in relation to China and the U.S.? 
Oh, I would have to say it was a plus, I think, for the, the United States, more than it was China. I say China looks, as I say, just like petulant. And America doesn't. I think even the president did pretty well, not so well when he went to Vietnam, however, but he, he did well in uh, India, but also India, because that's where the attention should go. And they did a very, very good job. This is a really different India from 20, 30 years ago. It is one that just might uh, be able to sort of live up to its potential as sort of as a, as a, as a global leader. Grant Newsham, thank you so much. Always great to hear your thoughts. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Two alleged Chinese spies arrested in the UK. The events have led Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to raise concerns about Chinese interference in Britain's democracy. The Prime Minister spoke of the issues during a meeting with Chinese Premier Li Qiang at the G20 summit in India. Lawmakers have named one of the two suspects a researcher in the British Parliament who worked with senior lawmakers. Sunak called such incidents obviously unacceptable. And the world's largest asset manager is shutting down its offshore fund in China, totaling over $21 million. The company BlackRock cites a lack of interest and rising costs. That follows a U.S. congressional probe over its investments in sanctioned Chinese companies. Meanwhile, growing concerns about a slowing Chinese economy is adding to the complexity of the situations. BlackRock didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. And a communist group was spotted burning American flags outside of the concert of music star Jason Aldean. The group believes in having a Marxist revolution in America. The protesters outside the concert in a Chicago suburb are part of the Revolutionary Communist Party. They also go by Revcom. According to News to Share, the police declared the protest an unlawful assembly. They said it alarmed and disturbed others. The group left after police said that those who remain can be arrested. Russia confirms that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet with President Vladimir Putin. The meeting is set to take place in the coming days. It comes amid concerns North Korea is planning to arm Russia. Putin reportedly invited Kim to Russia. Moscow did not say the purpose, time or location of the meeting. Putin is currently at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok. It's a Russian city not far from the border with North Korea and the site of Putin and Kim's first meeting in 2019. It's likely Putin will stay and Kim will go to Vladivostok. South Korean media cites unnamed government officials to report that a train has already departed North Korea's capital, headed to Russia. And coming up, does media bias obscure critical issues from public view? We have insights from a distinguished investigative journalist. And over 80% of investors believe there will be a strike by the United Auto Workers Union. What would be the impact? We dive into it when we return. Some New Mexico lawmakers want to impeach the state's governor. That's over Second Amendment rights, which the governor is suspending in the state's largest city. Here are the details. Two Republican New Mexico state representatives are calling for impeachment of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. 
That's after she issued an order prohibiting citizens from carrying guns in public in the Albuquerque area. One of the representatives wrote in a statement, This is an abhorrent attempt at imposing a radical, progressive agenda on an unwilling populace. Rather than addressing crime at its core, Governor Grisham is restricting the rights of law-abiding gun owners. The lawmakers added that the governor is misinterpreting the Constitution and calling her to reverse the order. The governor imposed the temporary ban after declaring an emergency following the shooting deaths of several children. She held a press conference soon after. Watch. You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your, your carry license? With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency, and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time. The governor's office responded to the impeachment threat, saying the governor is prepared to fight challenges to her decision and recognizes not everyone supports the public health order, adding that it's a public health emergency and extraordinary measures are required to prevent more innocent New Mexicans from being killed by guns. The order doesn't apply to licensed security guards and police officers, but private citizens with carry permits must transport their firearms in lock boxes and use trigger locks. Is media bias obstructing real solutions? An acclaimed investigative journalist warns about mainstream media's bias and social media censorship. NTD's Andrew, Angela Moy reports. Addressing the Hotland Institute's annual benefit dinner, John Stassel, a renowned journalist with 19 Emmy Awards, denounced the erosion of journalistic integrity. He exposed media bias, such as emphasizing climate change over governmental negligence in California's wildfire reporting. The media was droning on. The climate change has caused the California wildfires. And it was nonsense. It was bad government management, as so often happens. They weren't cutting away the debris. And you could really see this because on privately managed lands, they cut away the debris, and they were much less likely to burn. But that's not all. Stossel criticized Facebook for censoring his climate change video, Are We Doomed? The video aims to show both sides of the climate change issue. Facebook, Meta, they call themselves now, admitted that the fact checkers weren't really checking facts. The fact check was just another opinion. And you can't sue it about an opinion. Stossel says the media's exaggeration of climate change has hidden the solutions that can truly impact people's lives. He points to Hong Kong's success before communism, despite a lack of natural resources. He says this shows the power of the free market. The British rulers enforced rule of law. They punished people who robbed each other, or killed each other. They enforced property rights. You need that. But then they sat around and drank tea. They left people alone. And by leaving people alone, all this amazing prosperity was created in Hong Kong. Stasol emphasizes educating people about real solutions, such as the free market for better lives. It's our job to keep trying to explain free markets to people. And I'm not saying they're perfect. There will always be scams and bubbles, and people will be hurt by that. But you have to allow people to fail to allow capitalism to work. Energy firm President George Brennan agrees with Sassel about educating people on both sides of an argument. 
to, well, we talk to parents mostly. We're trying to get it into the schools and have like a red team, blue team debate, at least for them to have both sides of the story explained and let them make up their own minds. And that's the important thing. That's what science should be. But unfortunately, it's being told what you should think instead of how to think. Sterling Burnett, director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy, says educating the youth on the truth of climate change is essential. If we can reach the right youth, any, any youth, they're going to come to, they're going to grow up and be the ne next generation of America's leaders. And if we reach the right run ones, uh, there's hope that truth will win out. Nurse Marianne Krupa admires individuals like Stassel, who speaks out against media bias and censorship. A lot of rebels. A lot of people fight the good fight. The Heartland Institute is an Illinois-based free market think tank. It hosts an annual benefit dinner to fundraise for societal and economic solutions. Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. A possible strike on Detroit automakers looms this week. A survey of 99 investors by Morgan Stanley found that 82% were expecting a strike. Here to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, how's it going? I'm doing good, Steph. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks. Now, Don, what's the latest on this? Yeah, sure. So over the weekend, uh, UAW President Sean Fain uh, met with Ford and GM. And today he, he met with Stellantis. So he said today that the union is prepared to negotiate around the clock uh, with the D Detroit three automakers 24-7. Now, uh, so far, all three automakers have rejected the union's demand of a 32-hour work week. Um, but, you know, Stel Stellantis said today that it has reached a tentative agreement with uh, United Auto Workers on health and safety measures. So is it likely that we'll see a strike this week and what would be the impact on consumers? Right. Uh, so the Biden administration is actually expecting a deal between the United uh, Auto Workers Union and automakers um, be uh, because the administration has deployed top officials to help uh, f facilitate the talks. Uh, this is according to Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo. Uh, but if a strike does happen, uh, the impacts would be noticeable by some consumers, especially those in the market for a new car. Because, first of all, uh, UAW contract co uh, talks could cause wage inflation in the range of about uh, 20 to 40 percent over the next four year period. And that could potentially be passed on to consumers. And, and second of all, the Detroit three automakers account for about 40% of new U.S. light vehicle sales by units. So auto supply could also be in, impacted, you know, especially uh, popular models could become even scarcer if a strike drags on, which could then uh, end up costing consumers uh, even more if dealers charge more than the sticker price. But the good news here is that if the strike is short or limited to only a, a certain number of factories, that isn't likely to raise prices for most vehicles, so that, that's good news. Yes, that does sound like good news. What's the dynamic between the union of auto workers and the car makers? Who has the advantage here? Um, in, ter in terms of who has the advantage, it's hard to say because uh, the companies uh, have plenty of cash on hand to withstand a strike. 
GM, Ford, and Stellantis have continued to run their factories around the clock, you know, to build up supplies on dealer lots. At the end of August, uh, the three automakers actually collectively had enough vehicles to last for about 70 days. Um, but, you know, despite that, that doesn't mean a strike is not going to hurt, right? According to uh, some estimates, if a strike against all three companies lasted just 10 days, it would cost them nearly a billion dollars. And, and that's pretty substantial. And if we look back uh, during a 40-day UAW strike in 2019, GM alone lost $3.6 billion, Steph. Incredible. So what might be the impact on the economy at large for this one? Um, according to economic consulting firm Anderson Economic Group, a, a strike against General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis of just 10 days would reduce the U.S. domestic product by $5.6 billion. And on top of that, it could also push uh, the Michigan economy potentially into a recession, Steph. The, uh, the, the automotive industry has histori historically contributed 3 to 3.5% uh, to the U.S. GDP. So that's just an overview. Something worth keeping an eye on for sure. Thanks so much, Don. Yeah, thank you, Steph. An alarming number of defects in Union Pacific locomotives and rail cars. That's what federal inspectors say they found at the world's largest rail yard in western Nebraska. Officials say the railroad is reluctant to fix the problems, adding that the defects are a significant risk to rail safety. They cited a nearly 20% defect rate on rail cars and over 70% rate for locomotives, both twice the national average. One administrator questioned whether the recent layoffs of 94 locomotive craft employees and 44 carmen left the company without enough people to compete to complete the necessary repairs. With kids filling classrooms across the country, is it time for adults to get back in the office too? Some major companies that allowed COVID-era remote work say yes. Getting workers back to the office after the depth of the COVID-19 pandemic has had stops and starts. But now the CEOs of some major companies say they mean it. They say they want workers back in the office this fall or they'll face consequences. We are at a clash of contexts right now where employers, again, as I said, and employees are not on the same page. That includes some companies that flourished during the early days of the pandemic, like Amazon, whose CEO recently told U.S. employees to get on board with a policy requiring at least three days a week at a physical office location or consider working elsewhere. Zoom said last month that employees who live near an office need to be on site at least two days a week. And employees are finding the labor market is no longer tight enough to give them an upper hand. In July, the number of available jobs in the U.S. dropped to its lowest level since March 2021, according to government data. Employers who want workers back in the office cite the benefits of face-to-face -face conversations and collaborations. But some experts like Callie Williams-Yost, whose company has counseled others on how and where work is done for about 20 years, say this is still an experiment. Employers and employees have to come together and ask the question, what do we need to do and how, when, and where do we do it best? Coming up, gold awards are bestowed for NTD's classical Chinese dance competition. We have a collection of the best and most exciting moments on stage. Stay tuned for more when we come back.
total of 12 gold awards showcasing spectacular performances of classical Chinese dance. NTD's 10th International Classical Chinese Dance Competition came to a close yesterday. 51 contenders from the junior and adult divisions advanced to yesterday's finals after intense preliminary and semi-final rounds. Contestants portrayed historical characters with remarkable precision, combining graceful movements and breathtaking technical skills, highlighting the beauty of classical Chinese dance and leaving the audience deeply impressed. Bernardo Scheinberg, a 91-year-old retired doctor in the audience, expressed his admiration. I love not only the dance itself, but the meaning that the dance uh, represents. Really, because it, it made me feel that I was seeing something that I never saw in my life and that I was loving. The form and the movements make women look more graceful and men more masculine. I have only half Chinese. I grew up in America, so for me, having something like this um, where I get to see real traditional Chinese culture is very meaningful to my heart. This year's competition is the largest it has ever been, featuring 140 contestants competing in four days of competition. In the end, a total of 51 contestants received awards, including 12 gold, 10 silver, 13 bronze, and 16 honorable mentions. More and more young people are learning classical Chinese dance, and what these contestants reflect are the true values of pure goodness and pure beauty, which our competition advocates. The award-winning contestants shared their thoughts and thanked the competition for providing an international platform for like-minded dancers to carry forward the profound traditional culture of China. I still have so much to learn. I feel like you can never, I'll never be able to grasp the full meaning and essence of Chinese culture because the history is too long. Participating in this competition is a significant breakthrough for me. This year, I feel the biggest change is in my mindset. In the past, I may have been more impatient, but now, with stage experience, I know how to overcome challenges as soon as I step on stage. The purpose of the competition is to enhance cultural exchange and promote the pure, good, and beautiful traditional art of dance. The contestants share this passion and support each other's growth. Participating in this competition is to promote the beauty of Chinese traditional culture and Chinese classical dance, as well as the values of purity, goodness, and beauty. I also hope to enhance my understanding of dance and improve myself. And especially on this path of dancing, right? Whenever you throw things in like, you know, a dance test or a rehearsal or a dance competition, all these things help you push you up more and more and improve. Sunday also highlighted a performance by 15 past gold award winners. They demonstrated the long lost dance technique, the body leads the hands and the hips lead the legs. It was taught by Mr. D.F., the artistic director of Shenyun Performing Arts. The audience erupted in applause and cheers upon reaching the climax of the event. With the end of this year's competition, the contestants will continue to hone their skills and artistry in classical Chinese dance. And next we have a collection of some of the best and most exciting moments on stage. Take a look.
now let's get some tips on how to make the most of the summer season with insights from traditional Chinese culture. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. In a time not so long ago, people lived in harmony with the world around them. The shifts from one season to another signaled a change in behaviours. Examples include what to eat and how to prepare foods and when to get up and go to bed. Our level of activity also naturally aligned with the planet's rhythms. In spring we worked more, in winter less. But most people today are disconnected from nature, from each other and even from themselves. In Chinese medicine, living in harmony with the world is vital for a healthy body, mind and spirit. Here's how this ancient discipline looks at adjusting to the seasons. Summer is the most yang time of year. Yang represents fire, activity, expansion, motion and outward expression. Summer is a time of growth and abundance. Plants, trees and flowers flourish, fed by the sun's nourishing rays. Summer is a time when we should embody these qualities, rise early to benefit from the sun's energy and enjoy nature's beauty and plentitude. We feel these young qualities most in the summer. Being drawn outside to engage with friends, family and the planet, moving our bodies and expressing ourselves freely. Physical activity is young as opposed to activities such as meditation or yoga. These are slower and more introspective or yin. Running, biking, swimming or playing sports are good options. They are all young activities that we tend to be drawn to at the most young time of year. Instinctively we know that eating with the seasons is good for us. Foods at their peak ripeness are bursting with flavour and loaded with nutrition. This local seasonal eating will help you to align with the gentle rhythms of the planet. Summer should inspire us to choose a wide variety of brightly coloured fruits and vegetables. Cooking methods should be quick and light to preserve the essential vitamins and nutrients they contain. Steaming, poaching and blanching are some of the best ways to cook foods in the hot summer months. This is because they're infused with water, helping us to stay hydrated. Cooling foods that we need to counteract the intense heat of summer are abundant this time of year. Consider salads, fruits such as apples, watermelons, lemons and limes, sprouts, cucumber, tofu, flour and leaf teas such as mint, chamomile and chrysanthemum. Some cooling pungent herbs and spices to consider include peppermint, spearmint, lavender, lemon balm, lily bulbs and zucchini blossoms. For many, summer is one of the most enjoyable seasons to look forward to after a long cold winter. It's a time to soak up the beauty of the natural world that surrounds us. It's the perfect time to be active and joyful and connect with friends and family. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Stephanie Cox.